hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Evan Reese, an actor, writer, director, and editor whose first feature, Going In, is an 80s action thriller starring himself and Ira Goldman as former best friends Leslie and Ruben, who return to the drug scene that tore them apart in order to save Ruben's brother from the clutches of a drug lord. It's an attempt to make a movie that looks and feels like it was released in 1989, and honestly, it's pretty impressive. For his episode of the podcast, Evan picked a movie that actually was released in 1989, Roadhouse, the rowdy Harrington action classic starring Patrick Swayze as James Dalton, the world's greatest bouncer, who arrives in the tiny town of Jasper to clean up the double deuce and finds both his professional and personal philosophies challenged by local heavy Brad Wesley, who runs the town like his own personal kingdom and doesn't take kindly to the new fella, especially when Dalton falls for his ex. If you've ever seen a movie before, you know where Roadhouse is heading, which is the fun of it, really. This is someone else's movie. Well, I think Roadhouse is, uh, for me at least, it's it's a quintessential 80s movie that tiptoes a line of, is this good or is it bad? And I'm in the camp that it's actually really good. Uh, In terms of me enjoying it, it's one of the most enjoyable movies for me, just because of the rewatchability, the one-liners, the performance, its whole package, everything in it is just like, for me, it's just a laugh riot and it's a wild ride. <laughs> and uh, obviously, you, I was 21 when it came out, so I've experienced I it. How old were you? Well, I guess I was still 20. It was May of 89. So when, when did you encounter it? I, I probably encountered it in the 90s on VHS. Um, I, as a side note, I did watch it on VHS last night, so I'm primed and ready ah. to go. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, you watch it and and I'm not sure what your experience with it was, but Patrick Swayze is such he's such a, a unique anomaly to Hollywood where it's like if you were to see this movie, you know, with a, a Jean-Claude Van Damme or or a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone, it wouldn't work the same. He he brings this like I'm not sure that this like sophisticated uh, finesse to it where he's not this roided out big, you know, huge muscle bound guy he he comes from like he can actually act which in itself is is crazy but in that era acting was not the number one thing right so i think for me it's like it's so it's it's such a weird but awesome package because it couldn't work any other way to me uh, the the context i always fall back on is that this is like 8 months after die hard where yeah. casting Bruce Willis as the unlikely action hero and having him be vulnerable and scared and hurt for most of the film almost had a knock-on effect. Well, in, the same in action thing. writing, right? Yeah, yeah. And Joel Silver, who was not known for his restraint as a, a filmmaker, and was you know like cranking out these incredibly violent revenge fantasies for the most part, and disguised his action movies stuff like Ricochet and all that. Oh, yeah. um, and here he is working towards something because Swayze just wouldn't it's funny like he hadn't made Point Break yet but that's the outlier in his performances for me like he'd made movies like Steel Dawn and like these just knockoffs action pictures that were being funneled into Vestron videos VHS pipeline and Swayze wasn't interested in a conventional career in a way that's really fascinating and it's Mm -hmm. almost like the the concept of the, the reimagining of John McClane as a, as a sensitive, vulnerable person and Die Hard gave them license to experiment with some other stuff because this would have been made right around that time. Yeah. And Swayze 
just not being mean ever. Like he'll be tough, but he's never cruel. Yeah. It's a really interesting contradiction. And he's also required to say stupid things like pain don't hurt, but they're not (laughs) stupid when he says them somehow. That's exactly it. And for me, it's the conviction because he is a fantastic actor. Like again, just seeing this last night when he has to pull the knife out of Sam Elliott's chest, his mentor, it's fucking real. It's visceral. It's exceptional. Like, honestly, it's like that type of range just didn't exist in these type of movies. And I think for him, you know, obviously Dalton, this character, he's, he's the, 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 this cooler, this fantastic bouncer, but he went to NYU for philosophy. So yeah. it's like, it's like this whole other backstory um, of this guy who's like kind of a wanderer. He's a nomad. But like you said, he really like as a character and, and hearing Swayze talk about this, he really believes the conviction was so was so huge because he he really like, you know, this isn't just some paycheck for him. He embodied Dalton and became Dalton, where, like you said, he's not a bad guy. He's not a mean guy. But he even says a couple of times in the movie, like, oh, if I keep talking, you're going to mistake me for a good guy. And she's like, as in Doc, she's like, I know you're not a good guy. But it was <laughs> You, you kind of. He is a good guy. Like even even when he's a he's kind of a badass in in Dirty Dancing as as, as Johnny Castle, he's just like I don't know. He like I said, he's he has this weird quality where it's like uh, I don't know. It's it, it's exceptional because you look at him the way he's dressed, his hair. It's crazy in this movie. He's doing Tai Chi, oiled up. Two men are watching it. Like it's it should be totally ludicrous, and yet it still somehow works. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's exactly it. It's the self. It's his. It's Swayze self awareness. It's almost like he knows it's only a movie. I mean, he does obviously, but it's almost like Dalton knows it's only a movie. That none of this matters. He will end up having to kill some people, which is unfortunate, and he doesn't want to. But that brings him into line with like Alan Ladd in Shane, right? Like yep. it is an absolute classic Western setup where. This town is run by a gang lord. Effectively, he has banditos. I mean, it might as well be a border western. western from the 50s. And I, I've just gone through all the um, the Rannon westerns in the uh, Criterion Collection, the Randolph Scott westerns, and they're all roadhouse. Like, they're all yeah. really very similarly structured. And what happens to Dalton would not be too far out of this. Like, he's the guy you call when you can't handle the world around you, and he handles yeah. things for you, but he'll warn you that there's a cost. And yeah, he has a moral core that is rarely presented in this way. Or if it is, it's like, you know, the opposite for me thinking about it now is the Steven Seagal films that were being produced where he's, he's playing the same sort of character, but you don't buy it for a second. Like Steven Seagal's characters are hard to kill. Yeah, Under Siege is the exception. Under Siege is fun. That's true. That's it is true. Um, But yeah, in in terms of the Western, totally. This is basically a Western um, and it's, it's, where like this movie exists is like it's a place where these bouncers are like mythical characters mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like uh they're like hired gunslingers you know and 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 their reputation is everything and it precedes them and so they're bigger than life and i think that's why you know when when people see them i was like oh i thought you'd be bigger like it's it's very classic along those lines and dalton's job is just like you said he's he's kind of like uh you could easily see this being like a totally straight Clint Eastwood character mm-hmm. without any of the panache, any of the humor, any of the kind of 80s uh, flavor. Like this could easily be in the 60s, you know, like Josie Wells or something, but it's not. And there are these cool characters. It's almost like every character is like an archetype or something like tropes. But 
Yeah, I don't know. It, like I said, it's it's such a weird thing. Like it is is by no means my favorite movie. However, uh, I love it. Like it, it's it's a weird thing where you, you, no matter if it's on, if you, if you have five minutes left or five minutes in, you got to watch it. And I think every time you'll take things from it. For me, it's just hilarious because the writing and the performances are so unhinged yet nuanced at the same time. It's a weird like, it's a weird like I don't know contradiction. It's not that weird, though. I mean, that's the thing that I keep coming back to as well. It does function like the bones of this thing are made of steel. They're girders. They're um, you know what is going to happen in virtually every scene. The the once the rules are established, once the sort of the balances of power are dealt with, um, there is a sense of not just inevitability but satisfying inevitability. Um, yeah. There's a screenwriter who said. I can't remember who said it, um, that the thing you do as a writer is you take the audience where they want to go, but you follow an unexpected route. Mm. And Roadhouse doesn't do that. Roadhouse just says, look, good guy, bad guy, girl, yeah. other old good guy. This is the line they're on. There is a trajectory. It's established. And it really is just about watching the actors negotiate those complications. Um, but it's satisfying. It, I don't know why it works. Well, there. <laughs> I mean, yes, I, I would agree with you that there it is very simple, but mm. there is that like profundity within that simplicity. Yeah, it's simple, but it's not stupid. Exactly. But then there is also stupid stuff. Like, of course, the one the one chick that Swayze bangs is the ex-wife of the main villain in the movie. And he watches them do it across the river from his mansion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it's actually crazy. But it's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And like, yeah, of course, like her uncle is the guy that runs a hardware store that Brad Wesley constantly pawns and obviously later blows up his shop. Like, it's this weird Wild West that, again, zero police presence. It's never acknowledged until the last two minutes of the movie. But it's just like this thing where Brad Wesley, he has control over the city. Uh, sorry, town. Uh, yeah, it's not a city. It's three streets. Yeah. And it's just like. There, it, it like like it's it's very serious because this happens in a real way. But then also he drives a, a monster truck through a guy's uh, a car dealership and destroys everything, which to me is like the most eastbound and down style scene ever. Like you can <laughs> see that in like Kenny Powers, you know, like that type of stuff. But it's literally this guy's business like getting stomped on in front of them and then you see what happens next like it's 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 so outlandish but like you said it's very very grounded and and i think for me the, the biggest discussion is like did they do this shit on purpose like is this supposed to be funny or is just how movies were back then like you can watch any 80s movie that big or small they have that camp value but with this one it's like it's neither good nor is it bad. It's its own thing. It's a very weird, like it's, it's, it's a very unique film. Yeah. Well, and this is where we get to transition into the discussion of the director, uh, Rowdy Harrington, who has the silliest name of, mo of almost any filmmaker and yet only makes movies that a guy called Rowdy Harrington would make, like Gladiator, the one with Cuba Gooding Jr. or Jack's Back with James Spader and Chasing Jack the Ripper, sort of. Um, so this is a guy who started out working for New Line Cinema. He worked as a, as a uh, I'm Jeff, I've got his wiki right here. Unfortunately, it's the, the best I can he do. He was a grip and like, like was five a, years before he did this movie. Yeah, he made, he was an electrician on Humanoids from the Deep for Roger Corman. Uh, he was a grip on Repo Man, um, Best Boy on Nightmare on Elm Street. And then within four years, 
he sold and directed Jack's Back, this very, very gimmicky. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I saw it at the time. I think it played in theaters for maybe an hour and was a video hit. Um, yeah. It's not good. It is this really generic serial killer slash romantic thriller with James Spader. Um, is, I guess it's fair that the thing is 35 years old. He plays twins. Um, and it's, there's Jack the Ripper involved. And it's just, it's not very good. It's messy, but it got really good notices from critics who were looking for something different at the time. And I remember watching it and thinking, really, this one? But oh. I guess it does have, you know, like say what you will about the, the script, which is not that great, but it's got James Spader giving a real, real performances and doing stuff that's interesting visually as an actor, because he was always interesting as an actor. And it might've been his first lead. But it felt it like a breakout. And so from there, he gets springboarded into Roadhouse the following year, which looks like it was made for $50 million. It's glossy and shiny and yeah, everybody's wild. Um, and it looks like a huge studio picture, although it probably wasn't that expensive. And from there, he just goes on to make more kind of disappointing genre pictures. Uh, he made Gladiator, which is a boxing movie. It's not bad, but it's not great. Uh, Striking Distance, this largely forgotten Bruce Willis, Sarah Jessica Parker picture about a riverboat cop in the Three Rivers of Pennsylvania, uh, and then sort of struggled to get more work done for a while. But Roadhouse is the one that pops. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I'd love to talk to somebody, I've, I've interviewed Sam Elliott, but we didn't have time to talk about Roadhouse. I would love to talk to somebody about the production and find out if the actors just decided to play it this way. Because it, it doesn't, the tone of the film is unlike anything else Harrington ever did. I know. And it's odd. And, and I, you know, I, I've seen some bonus features of, you know, of actors looking back and even Swayze, like Swayze is by no means like a method actor or anything, but he takes that shit seriously. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think that translates. And, and, you know, at the beginning, when, when I liken this movie, it could be a vehicle for like a, a Jean-Claude or any other action star. You, it's just a different breed. It's a different quality of performance. Like those guys are action stars. Then they became actors. Whereas Swayze was an actor, you know, he was in the outsiders, right? Obviously, you know, red Dawn, like you mentioned, and later on ghost and these other things, point break, like you mentioned, Catherine Bigelow's finest movie, in my opinion. Um, it's, it's just like, it's, it's, he's awesome in it. And it's tough to, um, I don't know. It, it's, I feel like, You'll be hard pressed to find someone that doesn't like Roadhouse because even if they think it's bad, it's fucking entertaining. Like it's fantastic in the way that the action is good. It's not cheesy. Like the choreography is fantastic in it. Like you mentioned, massive sets. Like I think when they they destroyed the car dealership with the um, monster truck, that was like half a million dollars, one shot, one take. They had to do it. Like that. That is that translates. Um, and you don't have you know obviously a lot of stuff explodes. You have. The classic 80s things where yeah it's a party and all the women are topless they're getting thrown in the pool and everyone's having a good time and all of brad wesley's goons are basically like popeye's characters like it's, <laughs> it's like it's like straight out of uh you know this could have so easily gone off the rails and been a piece of crap you know and to some people it might be but the lasting um quality of it the fact that it's it's still i don't know like it, it's it still is somehow relevant um, and could never exist in contemporary film. It just couldn't. Like, it's tough to to pull off something tonally that is so, uh, I don't know, ambiguous. Like, how would you describe it? Well, I think it walks the line between ludicrous and clever. Like, it yes. is 
No, sorry, that's not the the Spinal Tap quote. The Spinal Tap quote is stupid, the fine line between stupid and clever. But it is that movie where at some point no one was taking it seriously. And then for a little while, everybody took it seriously. And then it became unserious again. But there is some weird rebellious aspect to it, right? Like this was made by a bunch of lunkheads. You you get the sense that it was just stapled together Simpson Bruckheimer would have made this if they'd gotten their hands on it, and it would have been the version that everyone thinks it is. And yeah. instead, Joel Silver just yoinked it out of somebody else's slush pile yeah. and turned it into or let it become whatever it is. And the other thing that I keep coming back to that makes no sense to my brain is that one of the screenwriters is Hilary Henkin, who co-wrote Wag the Dog and has an Oscar nomination and clearly was, was hired to character it up, to give it life. Because yeah. David Lee Henry was the guy who didn't, like his, his real name is Lance Hill. He was slumming. This was just work for hire or something he thought could sell. Like this is the exploitation picture somewhere in there that yeah. gives it its soul. But then Hillary Hankin comes in and rewrites it and turns it into something that actors can do. Yeah. And, and you get Brad Wesley. Is it um, Ben Gazzara? Ben Gazzara. Old school, kind of like theatrically trained actor who's this villain. And I feel like a strong point in this movie is, yes, it's classic action of these fights, but you have certain scenes, like the scene where Wesley's just driving his car saying, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, doesn't, that doesn't hold place in these other action movies. They don't have that kind of, I wouldn't say taste, but the decision making to be like, yeah, let's do a two minute scene of this guy just driving his late 80s Mustang carelessly down the street. Like, it, it really doesn't serve a purpose except for to be like, hey, this, let's let Ben Gazzara do his thing, kind of start the relationship between Brad Wesley and Dalton and kind of show that this guy's dynamic, like this guy is the king of the town. Nothing matters to him. He's careless. He's like this this baron, basically. Like it's there, there, there's a couple scenes like that where it's just, you know, like, for example, the gratuitous Swayze butt shot. It's like, OK, <laughs> like. I get why this is here, but you know, it'd be tough to, I don't, I don't know. I find myself whenever I watch it, I'm like, Oh no, they're in on it. And then the next scene I'm like, Oh no, no, they're fully like this. There's this fully serious full on straight face value. Like it's like, I find myself changing my mind every other scene because Swayze is so convincing in it. And it's Sam Elliott. He's his foil. He's awesome in it. He's basically his sensei. Yeah. Uh, it's just there's so many different elements to it, man. It's like it's it's truly puzzling and perplexing. And, and I think what sums it up nicely is the Siskel and Ebert review at the time in 1989. They both were kind of like, ah, it's crazy. Uh, Siskel was like, it's a no for me. And Ebert was like very close to a thumbs up. Even if I don't love it, it is so entertaining. And that's yeah. just, it still holds true. Yeah, Roger had a great sense for that. Like he would, he could feel like he was much, much more willing to go with his gut. And he, this is the guy who wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Like he knows when someone's pulling one over on you, on the audience, on the, on the studio. Um, and the other thing that makes me think it's all intentional, or at least someone, maybe Silver, someone is producing it very closely, is the casting. Um, not just in the leads, but yeah, you don't go for Ben Gazzara, a veteran of like half of John Cassavetti's most iconic and memorable pictures. If you don't know who Ben Gazzara is, you don't just pick him. And he's, he's got this twinkle in his eye, like he's selling us something through the entire film where, and and again, it's the simplest thing, right? It's like what Meryl Streep says about playing drama is you try to laugh through it. You fake in the motion that you don't want to slip through in the character. And then the audience understands what's going on. And Gazzara is just like, 
I'm not scared of you. Like, that's all it is. He's projecting this confidence that never cracks, which is so great because it reads as smarm and entitlement and, oh, yeah. and, you know, robber baron or carpetbagger or whatever it is. Like there's all this class stuff that's going on. that's never alluded to. Uh, it is a predominantly white picture. And yeah, as you said, there's not nearly enough of Keith David. Yeah. It's, there was, you know, the, the movie was probably half an hour longer originally, and there was like big exposition and, and why he hires Keith David. I think now he's just a bartender and has like one line, you know. Um, Sam Elliott, the, the the girth of his scenes were cut. Like, there's so much stuff where it's just like this cut must exist somewhere. It's got to be in a vault on a reel somewhere where it's like, I don't know. Like, you, you just want more. Having said that. I feel like there's no real fat to trim on this cut. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's only one definitive cut. I think, like you mentioned, for Rowdy Harrington, he's not the type of director to have, like, a director's cut or, like, final cut. Like, you know, you look at a director like Ridley Scott, it's like he always gives into the studios and then makes more money on the back end when he when he releases his own cut. Like, this isn't that type of movie. It's not like uh, an auteur or, like, a famous director. It's I feel like the, the sum of its parts makes it what it is. Um, it's weird because, you know, like you mentioned, that director, he doesn't have any other work where you can really point to and say, oh, that's his like, that's a classic signature thing. It's this weird thing. Like like you said, it shouldn't really work, but it somehow does. Um, and, you know, obviously it gets so ridiculous at the end. They, you know, we mentioned Ben Gazzara, how good he is, how pompous and how arrogant he is. And they viciously execute him at the end, like for shotgun blasts. He dies through a coffee table and then they're like. I, I didn't see anything and they shrug it off end of the movie they fully just are exonerated to get away scot-free by murdering this man in cold blood it's fantastic yeah <laughs> yeah well that's the western right like the, the dna yeah. makes it okay for us because we understand where it's coming from but yeah, yeah no it is like there is no morality in this film other than james dalton who is yep. who won't kill him uh having just ripped somebody else's throat out. He refuses to, to kill the guy with the money. And so the town has to take care of it for him. And I, God damn it. The last time I watched it, I was trying to figure out if Swayze was trying to let them know it was okay to kill him. Like there's some kind of signal in his performance where he steps away, steps aside. I don't know that there is. I think he's just, he remains upright and righteous. He's not, you know, like there'll be no murder in this town as long as I'm here. So I'm going to go to the bathroom. There's none of that. Like he just, he's probably appalled by it. But the thing is, seconds before, he killed all of Wesley's men. Mm-hmm. He murdered all of, again, he, he, she shows up wearing a karate top, tucked into his jeans, and just runs through. He trucks his entire crew, kills all of his boys, like he said. Four of them, murders them, knife, whatever, kills them. And then he refuses to kill Brad Wesley. Because I think, in a way, you know, he lets the town take care of it, like you said. He he shows up troubled and always like he's he's hanging on the past. He killed this guy in Memphis by accident. And in a way, this town and the doctor and Red, everyone there, they kind of rehabilitate him. Um, you know, he, he, this Brad Wesley he murdered his his sensei, his mentor, and he holds back for a second. He's about to get killed. No, no, no. These town guys, they take care of it. Murder him in cold blood and just shrug it off. And the cops are like, "Well, it's good enough for me." And it's cute, Jeff Healy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's yeah. crazy. Jeff Healy. Jeff Healy is in this movie. And that's like Terry Funk is in this movie. John Doe from X is in this movie. That's another thing that makes it feel like it's intentional as opposed to, you know, a bunch of actors were pulled off central casting. Like they reached out. There are musicians in the cast. There's a wrestler in the cast. Like there's there's reasons for all this stuff. I know. We just don't know whose reasons they are. 
No, and I think the Sam Elliott one is the most blatant one because he's just a classic Western guy. His Southern drawl, his voice, oh, you know me, ho. Like, it's just, it's so good. And I wish we got, uh, you know, a more rounded out role. Like, there's certain things where it shows his tattoo. I guess there was all this other side story in Exhibition we never learn about. It's fine. Like, you, you take it as it is, but you just want more. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. I wish the Roadhouse, you know, the double do should be the triple do. So I, I wish there was a bit more to go around. It's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about the difficulty of adapting Stephen King to the screen in movies like Silver Bullet and Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, and offered my suggestions for great Boxing Day buys, like Shout Studios' new restoration of Oliver Stone's JFK. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. Elliot was a recast, right? Like, did you know that? That the original yeah. casting was Annette Benning in the Kelly Lynch role and Scott Glenn? And Scott Glenn could have done it. He's he's done it several times already and since. But yeah. no, you need Sam Elliott. Like for that milieu, you need yeah. someone who's so specifically not from there. Yeah, and it's perfect. Like he's a perfect foil to Swayze's Dalton. Just like mm-hmm. he taught him everything and what he says goes. At the same time, he's He's saying, oh, like how much he likes Doc, his new girlfriend, but he's also trying hitting on her as well. He shows his pubes. Like it's just. (laughs) (laughs) I always forget about that. I never forget. It's just outlandish, but it's just, uh, I don't know. Like I said, it's such a crazy movie that uh, I'm just still astounded that we've spent minutes now talking about it because it's just like, it doesn't get much better. And again, by by no means, you know, I, I, there are many other movies that we could do serious analysis about. But for this, I was like, for the levity and how ridiculous and how how this movie can live is just fascinating to me. Yeah. No, it just has to be something the guest loves. It doesn't have to be a, an esteemed classic. Although I would argue that Roadhouse has become one in, almost in spite of itself, right? Like yeah. there have been attempts to do others in its vein. There were like there like every other movie produced in the first five years of the 90s. That, that had a bar in it for the direct-to-video market was trying to be Roadhouse. And there was a sequel, which I refused to accept. And apparently there's a musical or a remake or something, which I, I my eyes will not allow themselves to focus on this part of the Wikipedia. But yeah, uh, yeah there, was a, there was a remake in 2006 uh, starring Jonathan Sheck, who... Well, we don't talk about... We don't you, talk don't, about. <laughs> you don't see it. You just don't see it. Um, and then they, someone did an off-Broadway musical remake of it for Camp Value, which, you know, that was when Evil Dead, the musical, was happening and everybody was looking for that. But there is some kind of weird IP resistance. Like the, yeah. the, the text will not allow itself to be adapted. And maybe it's because that would you'd get like the copy of a copy of a copy because it is so much rooted in other things in the Western genre generally. Maybe it just wouldn't survive. Yeah, and I think also the context in the circumstance of this is, you know, like... For this movie in particular, yes, it's a Western updated to modern times in the late 80s, but I don't think a lot of that stuff could exist 10 years later in the late 90s. Like, you couldn't get away with it. Like, there's, you know, like the parties and the monster truck, it would become camp. Like, for example, a very similar movie, Hard Target, Jean-Claude mm-hmm. Van Damme, John Woo, very similar, total camp, totally outlandish, 
in the way they present it, obviously you have the John Woo staples, you have slow motion, you have doves, all that stuff, but very similar kind of stoic character, but it's just totally, tonally, it's a laugh riot. Whereas Roadhouse is like, oh, wow, it's like they they don't play to that kitsch. They don't go for that low-hanging fruit. And I think that's important. Um, and at, at the time, it, it was nominated for Razzies and stuff. You know, generally, it didn't do fantastic at the box office. It was only later on home video that it blew up, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure the bulk of the audience experienced it on cable subsequently in the 90s, right? Like when it was on TNT or TBS or whatever it was, right? Probably HBO because you, the PG version of this is no fun at all. But it could be cut fairly easily, right? With just a few cheap, simple, crappy edits away from the blood and and the, trim the sex scenes. But wait, wait, I think, but. yeah, the butt. No, I mean, the butt's a PG-13. You keep the butt. But the, um, the world that embraced this movie... Yeah, they treated it like a guilty pleasure. And it I mean, I'm sure it is. A, a critic I knew very well, John Harkness, used to say there was no such thing as a guilty pleasure because if you enjoy something, that's just pleasure full stop. The yeah. guilt comes later. The guilt isn't the guilt and the shame of liking something is entirely your own problem. The film it's the film is a pleasure by itself. And Roadhouse is one of those movies where I think it took, you know, it it, it became a midnight movie briefly. That's when it really connected with audience like became a mass thing where people understood that they weren't the only ones coming to see it yeah yeah it's (laughs) it's a real anomaly in terms of all of these pieces all these ingredients as a recipe it shouldn't be this good norm i don't know (laughs) it really shouldn't work um and you know there are other you know and by no means is it like you know there are other things like lethal weapon totally could have gone super camp die hard you know there's so many other other um, films that are, have really unique castings that they do work as well. And they're their own thing, but those generally fall into a genre, you know, action thriller, you know, you would never call lethal weapon, a comedy or diehard a comedy, but there are comedic elements Um, in a movie like this. They just hammed up the one-liners like crazy, you know, and even, even like it kind of acknowledges, uh, I think at the time when they were marketing it, it was, you know, after the success of dirty dancing and on the poster, it's, the dancing's over. Now it gets dirty. Right. And it's just Swayze leaning against the wall. Like, what the fuck are you going to do? And it's it's incredible because it's just like, ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Like, I feel like this is the most I've ever talked about this movie. But I've <laughs> thought about this stuff for decades because it's just, it has a, such a unique flavor. And, and, and like I said, I, I did watch it last night on VHS, how I first experienced it. Um yeah, I don't know. There, there's so many weird. Also, you know, if you want to go really into the weird esoteria, not only do they reference Dirty Dancing on the poster, but in the sex scene in this movie with Kelly Lynch, it's Otis Redding, uh, These Arms of Mine. It's the same song from the, from the sex scene in Dirty Dancing. It's exactly I, the same one. I had forgotten that. Like, that's got to be on purpose, right? Like, it has to be. You can't just be like, whoops, we somehow came on this exact same song that he had sex with Jennifer Grey. Now he's in the same song. He's having sex with Kelly Lynch. It's exceptional. No, it has to be intentional. It has to be. Right, but, but, but that's what I mean. And so that would, would, again, play into like the pathos or like, why why are they doing this? The metatextuality. <laughs> I mean, is it metatextuality? Did, did, a, did a movie called Roadhouse allow for that sort of thing? But I think it does. I think it's already so derivative and it's in different ways that it allows, I mean, anything is possible. Uh, within this world, right? Like you can, 
the moral of the story is that it's okay to tear somebody's throat out on purpose. Like if you mean it, it's cool, which is such a weird place to go for a redemption story. But you know, it's also Rambo's story, right? Like you can use your violence for a good cause if you believe in the cause instead of being used by the cause. But it's equally ridiculous and nonsensical. I mean, Rambo's even more of a cartoon. I would argue that Roadhouse is strangely more grounded just because nothing impossible happens. Yeah. And again, keep in mind at the end of Rambo, the well, first blood, the original, he, he, you know, he kills himself. That was the original. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was talking about the sequel. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because no, no, the first blood is first blood's great and self-contained and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. really weird in terms of the things that were embraced from it. You know, like it's a it's basically an anti-authority film that suggests that America really needs to think twice about how it's treated its veterans. And that got swept under the rug real fast once it became embraced by conservatives. But um, yeah, Roadhouse is pretty hard to misinterpret. Roadhouse is pretty clear. I think so. And like I said, um, and like you mentioned, it, it's I think the intention was very tongue in cheek. With the humor at the time, if you look at other blockbusters from the era like Top Gun, you know, there's the underlying, you know, homoeroticism, that type of stuff that mm-hmm. wasn't intentional. I don't think so. But then there's stuff in this where it's like, you know, there are there's a lot of conventions that are employed that you don't know if it's on purpose or not. They obviously have different things. Like, for example, the character of Red, who's the uncle, he was, um, you know. I just learned about this recently. He was one of Elvis's main bodyguards in the sixties. And he was an actor in this movie and they reference Elvis in the movie clearly as like a, as a tip of the cap for him. So there was definitely that awareness there. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's meta at all, but they, I think it was all those little choices were, were done for levity of being like, Hey, like we're having a good time, but then also when it needs to get serious, it'll get serious. Um, because yeah, it's this guy dealing with his internal, turmoil that he killed a guy ripped his throat out and he's still dealing with it but then you have sam elliott you know <laughs> one-liners as he's beating guys up and i don't know it's it's <laughs> it's it's so i don't know i'm i'm, I'm struggling with this norm like I've, I've obviously really liked this movie for a long time but now that the more i talk about it and we like dissect it the less i know you're forcing yourself to question your own assumptions which is what dalton would want you to do that's true. But uh, I'm not going to rip my own throat out about it. It's just, it's just uh, I think the main thing is that it's very enjoyable. And I constantly switch teams when I'm watching it. Is it on purpose? Is it funny? Is it straight done? You know, because I'm sure if, if someone has no sense of humor and they watch it, they're like, wow, this is just an action movie, which I think a lot of those movies from that era do. Um, this is it's some weird, some weird, I don't know, weird magic. I, I, I I would call this movie as as magical. <laughs> it's, I mean, it casts a spell. I'll give you that. The yeah. the thing that fascinates me, though, watching it now, all these decades later, incredibly enough, uh, is watching Kelly Lynch navigate it because she clearly has to be the straight man. And yeah. for some scenes, her performance reads as really flat and disengaged. Yeah. Yeah. But I think now watching it, it's like the irony of her performance is that she doesn't know what kind of movie she's in not not her but doc like this character has wandered into a world where all these things happen and she still you know because it's an 80s movie produced by Joel silver she dresses incredibly well for a town doctor like she's wearing gowns and 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 full-on um anywhere yeah, yeah. miniscript, what you call it, club wear, I guess it would have been in 89, to go to this small town redneck world where she is. But there's like, 
this character i i was building this time through i was building this entire backstory for his like is this a doc hollywood situation is she sort of is she working out a debt there is she stuck there because every interaction she has with someone has this weird hesitancy and it's deliberate right like it's not an actor being confused it's a character point because kelly lynch is too good an actor to phone it in there's something going on with Doc that we never fully understand, and I think I love it. It's it's so fascinating watching this testosterone-heavy film where her character is so clearly there just to be the sex object, but the actor is refusing it. Like She's just rejecting that role for herself and doing something different. And again, is that directed or is it allowed or was it something that slipped through because Rowdy Harrington was distracted by lighting? Like I don't know, and I'll never know. You'll never know. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think for for her, you know, she, you know, shadowed real doctors in the ER to prepare for this role. But you think about it, you're like, what? Like, she has one scene in, in the hospital. And yeah, it's just like, exactly. But to go through that, you know, rigorous research to play this part. And I think also her character, it's like, if you if you wanted to talk about her, she clearly used to be married to Brad Wesley, the bad guy. Uh, apparently, when she left town, he went crazy. Um, she's there because, I, you know, she she mentions she she w- she was there because of her uncle, so she's still there. She's clearly like an outsider in her own right, but then also she used to be the queen of the city because she was married to this crazy guy. It's a weird thing. I, I do agree. She is flat in a couple scenes, and it's almost like weird, awkward. Like like their their sex scene, they're kind of just like staring at each other, and it's kind of like a weird, um, uncomfortable action yeah. that. I think kind of works uh, because like, like you said, it is different than the rest of the movie. She does bring something to it. And when, when Sam Elliott's hitting on her, she's just, she is great in this movie. It's true. It's hard to, um, it's hard to understand where she's coming from. I think she knew the whole time I'm going to do it like, like, uh, like it's on the page. I'm going to be like this doctor who's doing her best and it's complicated, but I don't think she was, she didn't act like, she was in on it, if that makes sense. No, she is. A, she's not playing into the joke, or if there is a joke, she's not playing into it, which actually I works, I think, for her character because she becomes like the 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 platform, the pivot that the movie can tilt back to whenever Dalton or, or someone else does something preposterous. She can look horrified, and we believe it. She does, but then again, at the end, like you know, she literally witnesses Swayze rip this guy's throat out, and then. Two days later, everything's hunky-dory and happily ever after. So she still, you know, lives in this world where crazy things happen. But yeah, she is kind of a barometer for like almost like, I wouldn't say the viewer, but being like, what the hell's going on? You're acting crazy. You can't be trusted. But then at the end, it's like, oh, no, it's all good. Like, (laughs) it's all good. You just killed my ex-husband in cold blood. But let's go skinny dipping to Jeff Healy. He had it coming. Yeah, he did. We've established this. Multiple times, yes. Uh, it's just so, yeah, it's it's great. And like you mentioned, that is maybe the most Western aspect of it. Because the only the, the only police presence or the sheriff that shows up is at the very end of the movie when the bad guy's already been killed. Like, it's 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 wild. And there's obviously no, no one's held accountable. He had it coming. All these guys, literally, these guys are all murderers, all four of them. All these, yeah. these town shop owners. I didn't see nothing. You see anything? Nope. It's like absurd and that's where it gets like you know that i don't feel i feel like that kind of thing even a decade later in the 90s in, in 1999 for example that wouldn't work you'd be like oh that's that's ridiculous i feel like it's it's under the guise of being in the 80s that it pulls it off it's that full package that's like this makes sense here but it's fleeting like you you wouldn't be able to get 
away with that forever. No, it's just this this bubble will burst. Like this world can't sustain itself. It can't because the hair then will become cheeky, the fashion, the music. Um, it's remarkably well edited. Like there's there's a lot of you know, like even watching other action movies like this one is it's and, and stunts as well. It's pretty thorough. It does a great job in terms of a package deal being like it's it's you know, we, 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 we talked about this director. It's by no means like shoddy or like uh shaky filmmaking. It is rock solid and everything and the huge sets all the cinematography, everything is, is pretty great A, in my opinion. Yeah, you just have to buy in, right? Like you just have to accept it. I think so. And go with it, which is not the worst way to watch an action movie. I think it's the only way, really, because you won't know what happens until it unfolds in front of you. And if the characters believe it, then you believe it too. Because if, if you know, if there's if there's something so crazy happens up front, and yeah, you could say, oh, Swayze getting stabbed and not reacting, doing his own stitches, that may, might take you out of it. But to me, it just brings you deeper in. Yeah, well, in this case, in the context of the film, it's like, who is this guy who can do that? You're, you're, you're shown someone who clearly believes that he can take a grievous violent wound and yeah. and keep moving and the pain don't hurt thing like i said it's dumb as dirt but he sells it in a way that makes you believe he's just compressing some other elaborate philosophy down so he can quickly say it before he passes out yeah in the first 15 minutes bad shit crazy like literally he gives a car away he drives just like take you know he says i don't fly it's too dangerous you know i just fought a guy the guys with knives for boots and stuff like it, it's just that again makes me think like oh it's all like a ruse but then it's like, oh, no, 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 not so fast. This is actually dead serious. Yeah, it's an endlessly fascinating picture. Even even now, um, 34 years later, I'm 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 not I'm, I'm trying not to say I'm ashamed that I still enjoy it because, again, guilty pleasure. Yeah. It is there's something really fascinating and compelling to it. And it's it's never something that's on the top of my mind when I think about my favorite 80s movies. But it's one where it's just like, oh, yeah, that was in there, too. And that's like can't be you can't really deny it. Also, it does have this beautiful soap bubble quality where nobody in it has subsequently has subsequently been discredited or canceled or destroyed for some awful thing you can just take pleasure in all of these people and, and Swayze being gone just makes it even more uh precious somehow I agree with you fully and I think like I started this off with I think Swayze really ties it together I'm not sure like could you think of someone in that era who could pull off the movie and have to have the same kind of quality I don't think so. I think the only other example I was thinking of was Michael Perret in Streets of Fire, where he's doing the same thing. Like he comes to town to save the day and he's giving a really subtle performance of a two-dimensional person that was totally dismissed at the time and totally overlooked. But I, I like it. I like Streets of Fire. It's a, another inherently ridiculous concept, but he sells it. But he couldn't have done this. Like no. you need you need someone with Swayze's self-possession and self-awareness rather than just the ability to stand still and deliver pulp dialogue in a convincing way you need somebody who moves within the film and is there like yeah i don't know in terms of there's actors and there's movie stars swayze's very much both but he is an actor he has his own mannerisms his own conventions no one looked like him no one moved like him uh the fight training you know once he's you know swayze was a trained dancer his, his mother was a dance teacher obviously mm -hmm. during dancing but once he translated that to fighting, like that, you know, he is very much, we don't think of, of Patrick Swayze as an action star, but you look at, like we mentioned, Point Break, it's one of the finest action films out there. He very much was an action star. And by the way, he did all of his stunts, 
jumping out of the airplane skydiving pre pre Tom Cruise did any of that stuff. Swayze was really ahead of the curve. And again, I would say his performance in Point Break is is one of his finest as well, because it's just the belief and like the the conviction, I think, where it's like, I don't know. I just I think I would never call Swayze one of my favorite actors, but the stuff that he's been in, the stuff that he's done is absolutely top tier. Like Yeah. Oh yeah. I was always happy to see him. Right. Like he was never somebody who's like, oh, they got that guy. He was always someone interesting who would pop up and make something more interesting. Um and that I am gonna mention this because I still refuse to believe it's actually real. Um Jake Gyllenhaal is playing Dalton in a remake directed by Doug Lehman. Yeah. For Amazon, apparently, and they shot it last year, so it's a thing that is happening. Conor McGregor's in it. There's a UFC angle. They shot like a, a scene, you know, at a real live UFC event with the Pack Stadium. It's been delayed. I'm sure it's not going to be good. I think, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like, I, I, I like Jake Gyllenhaal. I think this was like, it'll be a misstep or they'll somehow shelf it or whatever. I'm sure there'll be copious amounts of reshoots to try and fix it. I've been following it along kind of like half-heartedly. And mm-hmm. to be fair, they've remade a bunch of Swayze movies, Point Break, Red Dawn. They've all been dumpster fires. Um, I can't see this being any different. I feel like why remake perfection? I felt that way with Point Break. It's just a certain that that point in time, the way they shot it, that era. Why why mess with it? You know, it, it's just like it makes no sense at this point. It's just to make money, which obviously is the Hollywood model. But there's only one Roadhouse baby, and that'll never change. Which brings us to the idea of something that you can never par- properly recapture or, or replicate when when the closing question on this podcast is always, is there anything from the movie that you've chosen that you have referenced or homaged or borrowed or outright stolen? And given that your film is very specifically set in the same era, is there anything from Roadhouse that shows up? There are quite a few things that directly, directly show up in my movie going in from Roadhouse. Actually, there is certain lines of dialogue that are directly lifted from Roadhouse that find their way into this movie. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but it happens more than once, maybe, maybe more than twice, but it's like, so, so esoteric that if you love Roadhouse, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to pinpoint it, but if not, it, it still works. So yes, I think that's very direct, very directly lifted. And since you saw it early enough, is it like, would you say that Roadhouse has been a, a specific structuring influence on your own work as a filmmaker beyond just the reference points? I don't think so at all. I think I definitely, um, in terms of referencing movies of ones I'd like to emulate or, or pay homage to, Roadhouse is more so the tone. And that tone what we talked about, which is like, you're tiptoeing a line. Is something so ridiculous or is it on purpose? Is it intentional? Is it meta? Is it covertly doing something you don't realize until it happens or you can look back on it? That's kind of what I used to try to make going in with, where... You package it up as an 80s movie. The score is there. Everything is there. The look is there. But if you might pick up on something, it's very much intentionally there. Like it's there for a reason. And generally it's to be funny. Uh, but that's not for me to say. That's just the intention. Right. I mean, when you're making a period film, there can't be accidents, right? Nothing. Everything in it is intentional just because if you tilt the frame three degrees to the left, you're going to see a cell phone. Yeah. And that's exactly it. When we, you know, we shot this movie for 80 grand. So we really had to be careful in the way we shot it. Um, and also just like you mentioned, that decision making, like we, you know, we shot this very practically. We shot it uh, as if it was shot in 1989, old anamorphic lenses. We, we lit it with old tungsten lights as best as we could. But then also 
when we shot it practically, we did use some VFX stuff to say, you know, Photoshop out condos out of the Toronto skyline. You know, it's like, hey, this, these weren't there then. Let's do it tastefully or let's remove any sign of modernity. Like there, here's a camera on the wall or like you mentioned, cell phone. There was never any of that all the way down to like the sound design. It was like, could it exist in 1989? We'll use it. If not, it's got to go. And you build a reality that never existed, but might have. I think so. And I think, yeah, that reality, obviously, I created this, uh, you know, fictitious drug epidemic, but that's kind of, there was real drug epidemics in the late 80s, you know, crack cocaine, there's movies about that. Oh, and there were always new drugs showing up in movies in the 80s. Of course. What was the thing in Robocop 2? The the blue? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's that, right? So it's all there. And I think to set the stage, you know, the, the intro of the movie, it's, it's, for me, one of my earliest memories is like PSAs nonstop on TV. So, you know, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? That type of thing. This is your brain on drugs. Stay alert, stay safe. All that type of stuff was mm-hmm. so predominantly part of the media where I had to open the movie that way because it sets the stage. It's like, this is the era we're in uh, going forward. This is what you need to know. My thanks to Evan Reese whose new film Going In is now streaming on Hoopla in the U.S. and Canada and available on digital and on-demand pretty much everywhere. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can follow Evan on Instagram at EvansList, E-V-A-N-S-L-I-S-T, and you can find Roadhouse in a 4K special edition from Vinegar Syndrome. The Australian distributor Via Vision just released its own Blu-ray edition, so you should check that out as well. And it's also streaming on MGM and Fubo in Canada and on Max, Paramount Plus, and DirecTV in the U.S., and it's available to rent or buy on various VOD services across North America. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme songs by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get the new booster when you can. I'll see you in the new year.